Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. you have your Bibles, John chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. We come to a passage that is, in every sense of the word, the summary of perfection. Now, it is important for us to define this word perfection because we use it rather loosely nowadays. We come to certain days and we call it a perfect day. We take a bite of a perfect meal and we call it a perfect meal. We think about anything that's good, that has a high value, and we immediately dub it the name perfect. What I'd like to do this morning is tell you that there is nothing that you have ever tasted in this life that is perfect. There's no day you've ever had that is perfect. There's no moment that is perfect in every way. Because we misuse the word perfect. There is one who is perfect. Meaning that there is nothing you can add to him to make him better. And his perfections are so sure that nothing can be taken away from him. The, the concept of perfection finds us only looking to the person of the, God, the, the, the Godhead, that we can look to him and see him there per- perfectly. But when we come to this passage, we do well to say that there are three things that happened perfectly. And what I'd like to do this morning is examine these things, and I'm convinced that what we should have on the other side of seeing everything that occurs in just these three verses is perfect altogether. We can find ourselves saying with great joy. As a matter of fact, I would say that we would be able to sing all the more loudly the praises of Christ should we understand that everything we're about to unfold is Christ executing perfection. That every single thing that we see occur here is Christ perfectly doing everything the Father laid out for him to provide for us a perfect salvation. Meaning that there's nothing more that can be added to the salvation that he's provided. There's certainly nothing that can be taken away. It is a perfect salvation based upon the perfect person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this demands that we use the word perfect rightly. So here, when we speak of perfection, nothing added to, nothing taken away, it is genuine perfection. And so uh, I would ask you to turn your attention to the scriptures this morning. John chapter 19, verses 28 and through 30. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the perfect word of God, truth with no mixture of error. John chapter 19, starting in verse 28, making our way through 30, says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, may we not read those words lightly. Lord, when we hear you speak from the cross, Lord, may they come with the greatest of weight. Lord, that in your flesh you struggled to breathe air so that you could say these things. But Lord, you found them so important. You found it so necessary to be obedient to the Father that should it mean you struggle to draw in breath that you might exhale these words, may we weigh them rightly. 
May we see them as some of the sweetest phrases that have ever been uttered in all of creation. So, Father, I ask you, would you help us to view these things and view them rightly? Would you help us to behold our King? Lord, even as we see him dying here, may we say, that is most certainly my King. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is rather simple. It is, it is finished. It is finished. There perhaps and probably will never be a sermon in a sentence better than that one. It is finished. It is complete. But if just to kind of unfold this passage a little bit better, let's do a bit of setting the scene. What is it that we need to understand? Where have we come from to get us to this point? The scriptures actually demand that we do a bit of recap. In verse 20, 28, it says, after this. So what are we looking at here? As we would sit, sit down and read this in one sitting. We would read the narrative of the crucifixion. It would be fresh on our minds that what we see is Christ being flogged twice. We see him be beaten with rods and we see him be whipped and absolutely almost uh, made to be so disfigured that it would be impossible for us to recognize him under the suffering that he has endured. We see him be flogged Christ. We see him be lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness. We see him be crucified, nailed to the tree, and we see him certainly be mocked. And finally, we see him suffer outside the camp. This is all that's unfolded. And we we look at this and for some reason, I feel like we, we, we expect Spend it in time, but in really, in reality, what this is is br- but moments, hours that we see unfold in this: beaten, bruised, mocked, lifted up, crucified, gasping for air. And even before we get to this particular passage, the other gospel writers would articulate other things the Lord has said and done during these few hours. But John finds it necessary, really, to only record these two major sayings of our Lord. And he does that because he's been developing them. He's already been writing of this finished work of Christ or even that concept of being thirsty. Already he's been preparing us for this moment as he's written out the gospel of John. And so there are a couple of things that I want us to understand as we look at this. First and foremost, we need to understand that when Jesus says or when John records after this, he is referring back to all that had already been accomplished. Now, what is it that has already been accomplished? We made reference to this last week that Jesus suffered outside the camp primarily to be a scapegoat on our behalf, that he would take our sin, that he would expiate them, that he would remove them as far as the east is from the west, that our sins would never therefore be seen again. The reason we can boast and we can rejoice and uh, who can bring a charge against God's elect is because we know Christ has carried them away. There can be no charge for anyone who is in Christ. It has been carried away. It has died in the wilderness. It will never again be presented before you. And so we can stand before God on the day of judgment and we can even say, who can bring a charge against God's elect and not be arrogant, but instead be humble and dependent upon the finished work of Jesus. We also see him be our sin offering. That the consequence, the penalty for sin has been paid. And that's where I want to continue to meditate this morning. In John 19, 28, it says this, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. There's a couple things that I want us to understand. First, what is it that he has finished? He has finished suffering in our stead. When we look at the cross, we don't want to divorce and we don't want to break apart salvation in ways that they don't all perfectly work together. But I do think a lot of times we do well to zoom in, to, to look very closely at one particular work of Christ at the cross. And friends, what I'd like to maybe consider this morning is the propitiation of our Lord, the satisfactory sacrifice. When we come to passages like 1 John 2, 2, it says we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation, meaning that he is the substitution, he is the satisfactory sacrifice for us and for all who would look to him in faith. 
So what does this mean? What does it mean that he would be a satisfactory sacrifice? Well, first we understand a couple of things about this. It means that he has in actuality perfectly, perfectly substituted himself for the wrath of God. Now the concept of this is, friends, there's no wrath left. There's no wrath left for anyone who has come to Christ in saving faith. It's, it cannot be found. Should we do the greatest examination? Should we look through every moment of our life and then stand before the God of glory and say, but Lord, I've done this and this and this, even the one that perhaps the sin, the trespass that you feel is the most wicked of all and you bring this before the Lord of glory and you should have looked to Christ as, your, uh, as, the, as the, the true, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, then he would say, it's done, it's dealt with. So what does it mean that he was a propitiation? What can we learn from this? There's a couple of things I would like to examine. First and foremost, he suffered as true man. When we look at the cross of Christ, there are even some that would present the concept that Jesus, after laying down his life on the cross of Christ, would then go to suffer in hell, meaning that he would go to continue payment actually in the place of torment. Friends, that is the most foolish thing under the sun. When Jesus said it is finished, it means that he has in actuality perfectly atoned for the sins of all those who would look to him in saving faith. And if I could just place a momentary fatal flaw in this logic. Friends, if he didn't suffer, if he didn't drink every drop of the wrath of God in the flesh, you have no atonement for sin. Because it was demanded that he be made like his brothers in every way. It was demanded that, that we, when, when one goes to suffer under the righteous judgment of God, that he suffer in the body. The whole, as we look forward into passages like Revelation 20, the true judgment that occurs there is that the whole person, body and soul, cast into hell. Friends, what we have in Christ is one who suffered in our stead. He drank the cup of wrath as the true man. We see one there who is a brother like us in every way. The cup has been emptied and it has been emptied in the flesh. That's why we read passages like he condemned sin in the flesh and we find ourselves rejoicing. He did this as true man. Most certainly we understand that he did this as true God for it is an impossibility to drink the cup of divine wrath apart from the power and the work of God in it. We see him drink the cup of God wrath. We see him suffer as true man. But how did he suffer? A couple of things that we can see from this. First and foremost, he endured the cup of wrath alone. This immediately makes me think of these moments that we find in the book of Revelation. Where around the throne of God is numbers, myriads upon myriads. Do you know what every single one of those men, women, and children have in common? That Christ drank their cup that Christ drank their cup and drank it to the dregs. There was nothing left. Now the beauty is that when we say that he suffered alone, it means that this is where the, the true God is so necessary. How is it that any true man, true as though he may be, could do so, could drink the cup of eternal wrath and fury, and but hours apart from him being the sovereign of all creation, the one whose time submits to him in every capacity, he can drink the cup of God's wrath because he is in and of himself truly God. He is able. And apart from him being truly God and truly man, there is no ability at all. He must be true man because if he is not, the one who sinned did not suffer there. He must be true God because man can't pay the penalty. He doesn't have the power. But in Christ, we see him drink the cup of God's wrath and he does so alone. Alone. That means that even the people in this room have looked to Jesus. He stood there. He lifted up, drank your cup, every single one of us. The reason we have unity in this world is because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath alone. He stood there alone, condemned, so that we might, in his grace, 
find ourselves first, just to, just to even consider what we do as a local body, to gather around the table of the Lord. The first of the month, we come together, we see the blood poured out, we see the, the body broken on our behalf, we take and we eat together. The beauty of the togetherness of the table of the Lord is often something we overlook. There's a reason we do it in unity. We do it in unity because Christ did it alone. We stand here, we, we feast in Christ in his substitutionary work drinks the cup of God's wrath alone that we might find ourselves around the table of the Lord drinking and feasting upon his broken body and his shed blood. But that's not the only time that we find unity. It perhaps, and I would say with great certainty, is the sweetest time that we find unity. Even in that moment, every mind that is in Christ is fixed upon the one who drank the cup of God's wrath alone. But friends, saints, should you find yourself ever looking into a brother or sister in Christ's eyes and seeing there that there is unity amidst everything in the world telling you that you shouldn't be friends with this person. There shouldn't be any unity among you. When you look into their eyes and you feast at their table, even as we take and eat together today after after this service is over and we fellowship, friends, the reason that you dine at that table is because Christ drank the cup alone. The fellowship you have was bought by him, by him suffering outside the camp alone. Now, I hope what that does is create in us a great love and affection for unity amongst the body. Christ suffered outside the gate alone that you might have fellowship, not just in eternity, but in every single day of your life as you're eating, as you're feasting, as you're rejoicing with the saints of God. When we come together to, to look into each other's eyes, to worship in spirit and truth, to eat at the table, when people come to your house, when you drink coffee with saints, why is it that you are there? Because Christ suffered outside the camp alone, that you might have not just friends, not just people that you are acquainted with, but that you might be a part of the family of God. And that family is not abstract. Friends, I'll be honest with you, I'm convinced that the, the extended family in the world is more abstract than the true reality of the church of God. Our unity is rooted in something eternal. It will never fade away. For those of us who dine at the table, looking into brothers' eyes, who, who, who look to Jesus as, as the Lord God and King, friends, you will do that forever. Forever. It will never fade away. Perhaps it is that for a stint, for a momentary, just a brief breath of air, you might miss that brother but through the expanse of eternity, we will be amongst those. There's myriads upon myriads who will be loudly singing the praises of Christ because Christ suffered outside the camp of loan. And we will not only even here and now see shadows of that when we feast together at the Lord's table and even in the fellowship that we have uh, day to day, but we look forward to a true and better feast. We look forward to the day that the bride of Christ would be there feasting with him, united with him, that nothing would ever be able to remove us from this perfect unity we have with the Father because Christ suffered outside the camp alone. He suffered outside alone that we might have unity, not temporarily, but eternally. Secondly, he endured the cup of wrath without relief. If there was ever one, if there was ever one whose mouth was so parched and also so worthy of relief. Immediately, as we consider this, I think of Lazarus and the rich man. We have this story, the rich man's over suffering and torment. Friends, and just, just to clarify this, the suffering that Lazarus endured and the suffering that any individual who dies condemned and is sent to hell, they did not have a single ounce of knowledge of the suffering that Christ endured on the cross. It is not the same. He suffered more in three hours than any sinner ever will in hell. And thus, when we look at this, we see him suffer 
without any relief, though he be the only one throughout, throughout all of redemptive history that was worthy of a little water to touch his tongue amidst his suffering. But why would, it, why would he then refuse it? We actually see this in the Gospel of Mark. Mark records as Jesus is making his way to the cross, people are coming and offering him wine mixed with myrrh. This is a sedative. The whole idea is let's give this to this man who is about to endure this great suffering, and Jesus turns his face from it and says, no, there's going to be no relief from me. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to suffer rightly. Why? For the redemption of the sons of God. He suffers perfectly for us. He suffers without relief so that we would have ultimate relief. He suffers as the rich man did. He suffers infinitely more than the rich man did. And he suffered without any relief whatsoever. Should there ever be one worthy, it's him. And yet he turns his face away and says, by no means will I ease my suffering. This is to the glory of God and the good of the saints. But lastly, we see he endured the cup of wrath to completion, knowing that all was finished. Notice the, verse in, notice the phrase in verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was finished. Friends, this is a presentation of an empty cup. Knowing that all was finished. It is almost as though he tips it to us. That John, as he's recording it, it tips the cup of God's wrath to us and says, nothing. Friends, when I think about an empty cup, oftentimes I think empty is the concept that there's no, there's not a substantive amount of something in it. When I pour out a cup, there's, I'm emptying it to some degree, but friends, oftentimes I come back to it and there are just little traces of liquid left in it. And I can even tip it over my sink and pour it out. I'll see it drip, friends. That's not the empty that we're talking about. We're not talking about an empty that has a drop or two in it. If there's a drop or two in this cup, you have no salvation. If there's a drop or two, then it demands your death. It demands that you be condemned. That's not the empty we're talking about. We are talking about the level of empty that should you take a rag and, and wipe it around, the rag would almost be drier now than it was when it went in. It is an empty cup. That means that there is no wrath left for anyone who has come to saving faith in Christ. He drank it entirely. It's gone. There's nothing there. It's empty. Now, this is so lovely for us. It makes me think of, of Noah. When we consider the story of Noah's Ark, I, the Bible documentary that came out frustrated me endlessly because you see water dripping in and out this ark. Friends, that is not the case. That ark was covered. As a matter of fact, the language that's used in the book of Hebrews is the word pitch, and that language is the exact same language you see on the Day of Atonement where it was covered. It, the whole idea was this was covered to such a degree that no water's getting in, not a single drop. Friends, should we understand the story of Noah's ark rightly? What we see is that not a single drop of water touched Noah and his family. Should we understand the cross rightly? Then we can say with great confidence that not a single drop of God's wrath is left for us. Nothing. It's not there. It cannot be had. It has been satisfied. Not swept under the rug, satisfied. It's empty. It's gone. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. There is no wrath left for the saint of God. It is all grace. And here's how we know this. Because we see this empty cup tilted toward us that we might see it completely empty. But then we see our Lord fill it full. Notice what John 19 through 28 says. It says, he said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So before we dive into how he filled it, I just want to present a question to you. Because the language of I thirst is rather interesting. As a matter of fact, John's been developing this concept since, since John 4. He's been meditating on the idea of what it means to be thirsty. 
And the first thing that we would consider is the lady at the, the Samaritan woman at the well. John 4, 10, through thir- 10 and 13 says this. Jesus answered her, If you know the gift of God and who it is that, I, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. Then later on in John 7, as he's concluding the, the, the Feast of Booths, he says on this, the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I just want to pause and ask a question. These are lofty promises. Essentially what Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman at the well and all of the Jews that are sitting at this feast of booths, he looks at them and he says, if you're thirsty, you come to me. If you're thirsty, I'll give you everything you need for not just to quench your thirst momentarily, but something that will satisfy the desires of your, of your palate throughout the expanse of eternity. It will satisfy you. Now, here's the question. Do you ever find it hard to trust a thirsty man to give you water? When we look at this, I mean, you see him there proclaiming, I thirst. I'm thirsty. But he's made all these promises that if you come to him, then you will have water that, that will never run dry, living water, as it were, that you will be satisfied, and not satisfied momentarily, but satisfied forever. And then we look to this account, and John says, there's one thing I've got to drive home in this. He's thirsty. So what does that mean? Can we trust this one who is thirsty to provide for us living water? We'll answer that question in a moment. Not only do we see this question presented perhaps in the mind of the readers, we also see something rather unique, and it's timely for us even as we begin to consider the Christmas season. One of the first things that we see in this is the self-sufficient God in need. A.W. Tozer said need is a creature word. The creator knows nothing of it. And for a lesser God, I would perhaps say that's true. But friends, Christ knew our need. When we consider this, if you read through the Gospels, Start to end. You will see time after time after time, Jesus wearied as he was from his journey. Jesus hungry. Jesus tired. Jesus thirsty. Oftentimes, for the sake of clever anecdotes, we say things like this. But friends, Christ knew our need. Now let me clarify, he has no need now. But should we consider and consider rightly When Jesus became incarnate, when he had a human body, truly man, he knew our need. It makes the book of Hebrews burst forth with life when it tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Friends, he knows a thirst that you will never know anything of if you have trusted in him. He knows condescension. He knows humiliation. He genuinely does know need. Now, as we consider even where we are today in our context of holidays, do you see the condescension of your Lord? His humiliation, as it were, that he would condescend, that he would know need, that he might ransom those who were in true need. He came and he ultimately experienced true life as a true man, yet without sin, never stumbling, never with fault, never with failure. We see the self-sufficient God cry out a cry of need. Not only do we see that, we see that Christ's obedience to the Father and the fulfillment of Scripture. Just consider this for a moment. After you've drank the cup of God's wrath, you can't imagine this. I mean, genuinely, I wish I could illustrate it. I cannot. 
when we consider what it would be like to drink the cup of God's wrath, maybe to maybe put it into some perspective, you find yourself in hell for the expanse of eternity, and at the end of it, perhaps you've suffered what you haven't, but at the end of it, you think, a little water. That would be our first cry, would it not? We see it even just moments as the rich man is in hell. He says, I need a little water for my tongue. Just a little drop will satisfy me, and it would not. But alas, he says, this is what I need. The first thing that any creature is going to cry is based upon our need. We need something to help us amidst this. But it is not so with Christ. His cry of I thirst is not rooted in his need. It is rooted in his obedience and his faithfulness. This is the filling of the cup of righteousness. He is so concerned with perfectly completing the scriptures that as he has just endured an eternal amount of wrath, he then begins to lift himself up on the cross so that his lungs can inhale the oxygen necessary to expel the words I thirst. That's the level of concern that he has to making sure that all that was written about about him is very clearly seen in his finished work. When we look to Jesus, we can say, as this says, the scripture has been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, when Jesus enters into the temple early on in his ministry, what does he do? He opens the scroll of Isaiah, he reads it, and he sits down and he says to them, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. Friends, in the hearing of all those around that place, even in your hearing now, Scripture has been fulfilled, but it has been fulfilled in Christ. He is perfect in every way. There is no excuse to find ourselves looking in to the Scriptures and not seeing and beholding the glorious person of Christ. He is the revelation of God. And thus, when we come, we see his faithfulness. But I want to show you this because this language is rather important. As a matter of fact, it really drove the way that we wanted to understand this passage. There's this Greek word, and it's rather an interesting word considering the, the, where we find it. It's the word teleo, and it literally means... Uh, to finish, to complete, to make perfect. Now, it's abnormal for this passage because when we consider the prophecies being fulfilled, there's a different word that the writers normally use, and the concept is more of, hey, there's a guy and he's pouring water into a cup that it might continue to fill up, that there is this continuous strain and that all is coming to fruition, the cup is filling up. But that's not the word that we find here. When the Scripture says to fulfill the Scriptures, he is not saying that someone is pouring water in. The language is the exact same word that we find when Jesus says it is finished, to tell us He is saying the cup is full. It's reached capacity. It is as full as it will ever be. And what is its fullness? Its fullness is Christ's glorious person and work. The reason that we can see this empty cup and think to ourselves, my goodness, it is empty, and then rejoice in the fact that it has been filled. It is no longer an empty cup to those who would come. The cup of God's wrath, absolutely empty altogether. But by the grace of God in Christ, that cup has been filled with a better substance that all the saints of God might come to and drink and be satisfied. It is full. It's not being filled. Christ did not add a little extra to it. He filled it to perfection, meaning in the truest sense of the word, that cup is, in essence, perfect. Nothing to be added to it. Nothing to be taken away from it. It is perfect in every single way. Perfect. It is full. So let's go back and ask the question, can this man, can this thirsty man deliver living water? And the answer is he delivers living water from this moment. This is the moment that the, that the rock is struck in the wilderness and water flows forth. What do we see when we see Christ crucified? We see him buying the Samaritan woman some water that she might drink and never thirst again. 
What was he doing on the cross? He was accomplishing all that was necessary so that all who come to him would drink and have their fill of Christ. He was thirsty that we might drink and be satisfied. As the Lord has said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. They are satisfied in nothing other than the finished work of Christ, that cup that has been filled with his righteousness, a perfect cup for us. But that leads us to perhaps the sweetest, even imaginable, how anything could be sweeter than those. The simple phrase that he would say in John 19, 30. Let's read that text together. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. First thing to note, who is it that killed Christ? We know from John 10, no one killed him. He laid down his life of his own accord. But Isaiah would tell us that he was crushed, that it was the will of God to crush him. Friends, the beauty of this is this moment is not defeat. And friends, let me tell you, there are people who have looked at this moment and said, see the defeat of the Son of God. No, we see his victory. We see him accomplish all that the Father had set him out for. We see him be submissive to death, even death on a cross. We can say with great confidence that it is the Lord, that it is the God the Father that bids him die. And it is the same God who bids us live. And we live in his death. Because he has died, because he has laid down his life for us, we can read books like what John Owen would put forth, the death of death and the death of Christ, and find ourselves doing nothing but rejoicing. Because truly, in that moment when Christ died, should we understand substitution rightly? I died there, the death of death. My death, he died there. Not a blob of sin, not just a collection of bad deeds, but a people. He died for the church of God, for the saints of God. The death of death and the death of Christ for the church. There's no death for the church any longer. Should we look to him, see him there, lifted high place all of our faith and trust in him, death has been done away with. Saints, we don't even know it fully. You will never know, should you have trusted in Christ, even the first genuine aspect of death, at least defined by John's gospel, at least defined by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 17, 3, life is knowing Christ. From the moment you came to saving faith in him, your death has been died. You were dead before, but should you look to him there perfectly, set, laying down his life for you, then life you have had from that moment forward into the expanse of eternity, it will never be taken away from you. It is true and genuine life. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if it is finished, and finished meaning the cup is full, it's done, it's perfected, there's nothing more to add to it. What of my good works? Friends, when something is perfect, I mean, it's perfect. You just imagine perhaps the most the, the greatest dish you have ever tasted. And someone were to come and just add something to it, perhaps anything, and immediately the whole dish is thrown off balance. Friends, if you aim to add anything to the perfect work of Christ, you have corrupted it. If you aim to present your good deeds that are, that are before God, filthy rags, you want to bring those to the God of glory who sacrificed his son that you might be brought into his family, and you say, oh, Lord, Lord, Christ, yes, but look what I've done then you can rest with great confidence knowing that you will be the one that he says to you, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. We look at that text and we think it a mystery. It's not a mystery. It's rather simple. Should you present before the Lord of glory your deeds, then you have looked at the cross of Christ and scorned it and said, insufficient. You have unfinished what he has finished. You will not find rest for your soul there, you will receive the just perversion, of the just penalty of your perversion. So we say, what of your good works? Let them flow from his finished work. Never be added to them. 
if they flow from his finished work, then they are sweet. They are an aroma before God, a sacrifice of praise, glory, and honor given unto him. But should you aim to add them to the finished work of Christ, your good works are idolatry. So we see that it is indeed finished. Our good works flow from it, but most certainly they can never be added to it lest we corrupt it. But the verb tense here, when we consider the language, it is finished. And then he bows his head down in worship. That language doesn't demand that we just zoom in on the moment. It's not telling us. We just want you to look at the death of Christ. And and most certainly John is drawing us to that point, but he is really pushing us forward. He's asking the question as he uses this tense. He's perfected it. Christ has done this great work. And since he's done this great work, it has lasting effect. As a matter of fact, even the language that's used here in the Greek is telling us, examine the effect. Examine what this has done. And friends, we have the greatest depth of examination of what the finished work of Christ has done in the epistles, in Hebrews, in Revelation. Frankly, even going back into the Old Testament, it tells us of what has been accomplished by Christ perfectly finishing the work of salvation. And I'd just like to present, present to you a few. First, What we find based upon Christ, it is finished. When he has actually completed salvation, when he bows his head down and gives up his spirit, from that death we have people drinking free of the well of Christ forever. Zechariah makes reference to on the day, on this day a well has been opened up. Saints, what we have in Christ's finished work is a well that has been opened up that all who would come to it would drink and be satisfied and not be satisfied momentarily but satisfied eternally. That cup that he bought for the Samaritan woman at the well, he buys for anyone who would look to him in faith. People born into the kingdom of God. John chapter three makes it very clear that no one can be, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they be born again. Friends, the reason anyone is born again is because Christ has paid their debt. Apart from him paying their debt, no one would ever be born again. It is the Spirit's job to apply what Christ has accomplished. And he does so in perfect harmony with what Jesus did on the cross. When he said it is finished, to all those he finished atonement for, they will have the Spirit of God give them new life. Not only that, we have people presented, imagine this, holy before the Lord of glory. Holy. Friends, I don't feel holy right now. But it matters not. The, 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 the beauty of the Christian worldview, it says, make your feelings bow to truth. Saints, if you be in Christ, if you be in Christ, perhaps you feel the most wretched you have ever felt in all your days. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, the proclamation is simple. If you stand there and say, all of Christ, it's Christ who did this, he finished it, then on that day you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, things that we are unworthy of. People blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Saints, as you read Ephesians 1, all those heavenly blessings that are laid out for you, they're, they're rich, they're given unto you. Peter would elaborate on them a bit more, call them imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Saints, those are yours based upon the finished work of Jesus. You can't buy those. You can't buy them, but he, as he has finished atonement, as he has finished justification, adoption, propitiation, expiation, he has bought all of those for you. They are yours in Christ Jesus. We see people adopted into the family of God. We've already made reference to this, friends. It is the death of our Lord that adopts every single one of us into the family of God. And that family is true and genuine, and that family will be kept throughout the expanse of eternity. We will be his with Christ as our head and God as our Father. Lastly, and most sweetly, the finished work of Christ has done one splendid thing, that people around the throne will be singing loudly the praises of Christ forevermore. We get the joy and the privilege of singing every Lord's Day. We get the joy and privilege of coming together, no matter how bad you might sing, 
and hearing the sweet sound. The joy of sitting on the front row is that I get to hear every saint's voice. And friends, it is so precious. It is so sweet. And it is not sweet because all of us have lovely voices. It is sweet because Christ is worthy of every tongue bidding him glory. And throughout the expanse of eternity, based upon his finished work, every tongue that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus will be around that throne bidding him glory. Now the simple and maybe final response is just genuinely an invitation. And the invitation is simple, and the invitation is presented by Scripture. First, I think that we give an invitation to the saint. What is our response to this? How is it then that we live? And we consider the finished work of Christ. We would say that our good deeds then flow from his finished work. It's not us adding something to him. But John does an excellent job. As a matter of fact, the prophets do an excellent job of telling us what it is that we should do. John says in Revelation twenty two seventeen, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take water of life without price. Friends, how do you buy without price? It's already been purchased. You come and you feast, you eat, you drink, and you find yourself there feasting on the wealth of heaven. And you think, what has this cost? And the answer is, for you, nothing. For you, nothing. It is not a cheap grace that we have. It's costly. But by God's grace, he has paid the cost for us. It is the sacrifice of his beloved son, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And saints, if all these things be true, then how can we not be the first ones first to drink and eat and celebrate and rejoice in Christ every moment of every day? But secondly, how can we not be the ones who are heralding the good news? Come, come and eat. Come drink of this water that's free. It's without price. Come and and feast. It'll fill your soul. Your, Your bellies will be satisfied. There will be no need for you ever spiritually. He has provided everything. And even Isaiah meditates upon this. In Isaiah 55, he says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Friends, the price has been paid. The beauty and the good news of the gospel is that when we carry it, first of all, we're savoring it, we're enjoying it, we're seeing it is finished, it is done. I I have perfect salvation delivered to me by Christ. And man, it makes the gospel sweet to deliver, doesn't it? Should we go forth and we say, do this, do that, then we've emptied it of its power. But should we go forth and say, come eat, drink, buy without price, then we offer them genuine good news. Saints, for those of us who see, for those of us who behold, it is finished. May I simply ask the question, and we'll conclude with this. How can our tongues be still? How can our tongues be still? How can they not sing in praise? How can they not proclaim in joy? How can they not be the the moment that John's meditating upon this concept in Revelation and say, come drink, drink and enjoy the glories of God in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come, and even that, we come born of grace. What I'm reminded even in the Old Testament, you tell your people, don't touch this mountain lest you die. The Lord in Christ We have this command to draw near with hearts full of assurance and with confidence. And so, Father, I ask you, remind us of the origin of our confidence. Remind us that when we stand before you and we can say with great confidence, I am a child of the king. I am adopted into the family. I am righteous altogether. I am a saint. Lord, that we do so not arrogantly, but we do so boastfully. 
Not in ourselves, but in the cross of Christ. Because in his cross, in all of the the splendors and, and excellencies that that brought to us, may we never find ourselves with still tongues. For he is worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor and proclamation. And Lord, help us to look forward to the day where we will, because he suffered outside the camp alone, gather with every saint he purchased to sing his praises together with a choir that will be more excellent than anything that any ear has ever heard here. Help us to look forward to that day rightly, longing to see our brothers and sisters in the flesh be made brothers and sisters in the cross. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.